0: Hi! Hi, Joram!
1: Hi, Tegan! How are oh. you?
0: Hello, audience, who is listening to us. Welcome to Plants and Papettes. We're a podcast where we talk about plant science. I think it's bit. already clear that I'm Tegan, and that's Joram.
1: Yeah, we talk a little bit about plant science. Yeah. If, but not if we can help it.
0: What have you been up to?
1: Um, so busy. So, so busy! You might have noticed, you as our listeners and you as my partner in crime... Um, that we didn't do anything on the block this week and were in general very quiet. Um, oh. Because we I spent my weekend f- doing my l- last finishing touches on my thesis and before I could send it out to my Woo-hoo! old supervisor. That was yeah. a major milestone.
0: That was pretty impressive, actually.
1: Yeah, that was really cool. But so that ate all my energy on the weekend um, because I had to go through Tegan's edits. And if you know Tegan, you know that she is like a very thorough editor. But it also means, actually like, points out all the mistakes you make. And then, um, yeah, I had to correct all of my mistakes. But it was worth it. Now it's, I sent it off um, to our old supervisor, who has been completely quiet since then. So I have no idea. I mean, you um, sent
0: it off yesterday, right? Or two days ago. It's not really... On
1: Monday. Yeah.
0: It's not a long time.
1: No. But it felt, to me, like, it was so so important. And, I mean, you, obviously, it's not as important to my supervisor as it is to me. But, yeah. Um,
0: also, to you, it's so important. But also, you just took like three years to to write it. So, yeah, like, true. hold your horses, give him a couple of days. It's gonna like
1: as long as it's not three years.
0: I mean, also he he might just not respond. He might just like post you the. I'm assuming he's posting it to you now. The the edited version back. That so
1: can, that can very well be. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I did that. And now um, this is now my, I think, ninth consecutive hour today that I'm wearing this headset because I, I've been in a Zoom workshop from work, um, a design workshop that was yesterday, today and tomorrow. Um, and so I'm a little bit screen tired um, and tired in general. But
0: What's a design workshop? What are you learning?
1: We're um, not really learning. We're developing our um, digital... Products essentially so we we want to do um, a showroom um, but the showroom should not only be a physical space it will also be a physical space but it also should be a digital space because nowadays more than ever people can't all come to physical spaces and look at science so um, we want to do something cool that people can do that from home uh, and so, together with an agency, we're actually developing sort of ways to achieve that. And it's really cool. It's really it's a lot of input. It's a lot of like thinking and and work and trying to figure out where we want to go and um, talking to like we're about a dozen people from different areas from from my university that I'm working at now. So um, all with different skills and expertise and interests and stakes and so on. And so we're bringing all that together. Uh, which is a lot of fun because I haven't worked with um, a larger group for ages, but at the same time, it's really mentally straining. Um,
0: Do you find yourself also getting like socially strained as well from ha- interacting with all those different people?
1: A little bit, yes, but I think overall I'm still more extrovert than most of them are. So uh, to me, I think it's easier than to the others because then I, I just start talking Um
0: I'm definitely finding myself at the the point of the pandemic where like meeting people makes me over respond and then like firstly confuse the people I'm talking to because they're like, why is this person just coming at me so, so loud and aggressive, <laughs> um, which I mean, I'm already naturally loud and aggressive, but now it's like extra pandemic. Yeah. Um, and then it also exhausts me by the end of the day when I'm interacting with people, I am just completely done. Like, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's true. But at the same time, it's fun to be productive again. And also, it will be my only social contact for at least a month, because um, Germany is going back into um, sort of soft lockdown, but with pretty oh, much that. a ban on on all kinds of social contacts. Um, so, I mean, I, I anyway, I didn't really meet any people, but um, now... I definitely won't meet any people. I will just be going out to shopping and bring my my kid to the... To so the this, theater. Is,
0: this is basically a circuit break at lockdown that you guys are going to have. So it's three weeks, I think. And the aim is to get people kind of locked down to move the numbers down before Christmas comes. Because obviously when Christmas comes, people will want to visit their family. And even if you say you can't, they, they will visit their family. Yeah. And families tend to have old relatives who are highly susceptible to dying from COVID. So I think the timing of this is quite nice. And also if it is a kind of three-week lockdown it's 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 four
1: weeks it's like all of november four weeks
0: okay it's it's also it is much more i think it's easier to stomach for me if it's got a set timing to it than just like oh we're just gonna lock down and see how it goes like that seems a bit more
1: yeah i mean to be honest to cope with to be honest i should have done this two weeks ago um they should have done a four-week lockdown two weeks ago that would have been well i guess
0: they they didn't want to have the the build up again before christmas right this kind of makes it a bit more.
1: Yeah yeah but hopefully i mean in hindsight you can always say ah this and that time point would have been better but um i had a feeling that since then like the numbers were very predictably rising again um so it there, there was a time definitely where you could have just said okay let's let's shut down now and then do a slow reopening afterwards so we can sort of sail towards christmas on low numbers um and try to keep everything as low as possible during that time um but at the same time, yeah, I mean, it's hard. I mean, we, we have already now so many people protesting. And so from more and more sides now, I see people coming up against any kinds of measures and being like, oh, these measures are actually illegal according to the laws that we have. And therefore, um, they can't order us to stay at home and they can't do this and they can't do that. And I can sort of understand where they're coming from, but at the same time, I don't really feel like it's the right time to be calling like legal details on measures and being like, oh, technically in the law, according to these five words here, you can't do this and that measurement Um,
0: because... I mean, that that is always the argument, right? Like the, the law doesn't mean so much. I mean, you can see that different governments in different parts of the world have had wildly different responses to the COVID. And I mean, taking this is what my supreme leader says as the absolute definition of what you should do is firstly a bit ignorant especially if you're a scientist or interested in behaving in a scientific way but secondly like this is not the rule we should be following the rules we should be following are don't be a jerk because there's lots of things that are still legal but are like objectively jerky so i mean Yeah, I've heard the argument before of people like smoking outside a window and saying, well, technically, I'm outside, I can I can smoke here, but they're right outside a window. And it's like, well, you can smoke there, but you're being a jerk. Um, I can also, like, walk into your house and fart. I can do it, but I'm being a jerk. Like, there's just, there's a, there's an extra rule of, of common decency that should come on top of whatever our glorious leaders are telling us to do, you know?
1: Isn't it a bit sad that our society struggles so much with just having a little bit of decency in terms of sort of, like, social interaction? Because that would be enough, just being... A little bit socially aware and nice to other people.
0: I mean, Yoram. Sometimes it's really hard not to fight in people's houses. That's just apparently the take-home message, and I'm using that as a metaphor for blah blah blah. Whatever. Um. Yeah. Whatever. That's that's the lesson from everything right now. I feel like. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. It's been a long year, guys. Um. We're almost over, and it's going to keep going, even when 2020 ends brace yourselves
1: yeah this Grace is also um the the last week before no i can't say that
0: before the election
1: <laughs> i yeah before the, let's let's just say the election and not any like draw any of the terrible outcomes that are on the horizon actually <laughs> let's not uh, mention them for for real
0: yeah good luck us try not to <gasps> it up yeah, <laughs> the rest please. of the world is really, really, really hoping. <laughs> P-
1: please, please go w- go vote. Um, don't vote for Trump. Vote for Biden. Um,
0: we we don't know if anybody from the U.S. even listened to this podcast.
1: Like according to our stats, some people are from the United States who listen, and so please go and vote. I mean, uh, probably our listeners did vote already, um, but I, I've I've seen I've seen these these videos and pictures of spe- people uh, waiting for hours. Around, like, not one block or two blocks, but around, like, four or five blocks was the queue um, mm. at the voting po- uh, station for the early voting. And I'm, I'm at a loss for words because, like, I, I never waited longer than 10 minutes to cast my vote in Germany.
0: Yeah, but that's because there's, um. so my, my US colleague was telling me about this, there's there's fewer um posts ballot places for the early voting. So it doesn't, like, theoretically, I mean... Maybe the voting system is not perfect, but theoretically there should be more. There's, there's going to be more places for the actual voting on the day. It's just that for early voting, there's limited spots, so there's more likely to be longer lines. And obviously, like if you go on a Saturday, everybody else wants to go on a Saturday as well. So it
1: would be good if there would be a system in place where you could maybe like put your vote, uh, like cast your vote, put it in an envelope, put it in like a box, and a oh, person transports it somewhere, and then it's counted properly with no problems. That would be a good system.
0: Um, I don't know. I understand why people like given all of the the drama that Trump's making about the mail in voting and you know when to count those votes, blah blah blah. i I understand why people are I, I'm not blaming nervous voters. about doing that, right? I, I'm not
1: blaming anyone who's standing in line for the early voting state polling stations. I'm I'm blaming those who break the system of um safe mail in voting something that we have in Germany also for ages and, and it works and we don't have like fraud. And yeah, it's but very like, like,
0: not to turn this back on Germany, but I feel like there's like an over-obsession with snail mail in Germany. Like there's a, a bizarre love affair that has continued. I mean, <laughs> for for I would say decades after snail mail has become largely redundant.
1: Yeah, but for something like a democratic election, it's sort of an advantage to still have a working post office.
0: You know what I like the system where you all have to bring colored shells and then you put the colored shell <laughs> in the box.
1: All I'm saying is I'm I'm with our um with with our people in the United States. I'm I'm what is it like crossing my fingers, knocking on wood, holding my thumbs. I'm 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 really hoping for the best. I'm, I'm with all of the people for whom it's becoming really an existential question right now and not just a political question and keep on fighting the good fight. And we're with you. And next week we will know hopefully more, hopefully good news. Um, but it's, it's, it's a weird time now. It's, it's a very, I don't know, even though I'm only sort of tertially or even less than that affected, um, I still feel anxious <laughs> about next mm-hmm. week so um
0: i mean it, it does affect the world right I, it's, like yeah that's just the reality and i mean i know australia our government has a really bad tendency of just copying everything the states does so yeah um also standing by you like good luck to everybody all our friends in poland who are also fighting the good fight right now also kind of horrible things happening there so yeah yeah but maybe let's do some science because...
1: <laughs> yeah, that, w- that was it for today with the um, like devastating state of the world. Um, let's look instead at the non-devastating state, at the beautiful state of plants. It's the paper of the week. Today, Tegan chose a paper. And it's a cool paper, uh, I guess. Um, it's... <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's called Calcium Dynamics During Trap Closure Visualized in Transgenic Venus flytrap. It came out in Nature Plants this month in October um, and it's by Hiraku Suda and colleagues with the corresponding author Mitsuyase Hasabe. The reason we're doing this paper is basically because um, we're looking for something to present and this work has been doing the rounds um, on all of the different internet sites related to plant science and it's mostly because... It looks really cool. So there's videos of these Venus flytraps glowing a beautiful green when you touch them. We'll come back to that a little bit later, but I really do recommend that you stop what you're doing and click on the links and go and watch those videos because it looks cool. And it's also quite Halloween-y. It's kind of spooky and spectacular and, yeah, kind of brilliant.
1: I mean, they're often called glow-in-the-dark and that's not perfectly accurate, but... um the, the it's a nice like spooky green glow that's emitted by by the the plants in this experiment and uh, um, yeah in general why
0: tell us why you say it's not glow in the dark here
1: because um, it's a fluorescence and fluorescence need um, an inducing light so you have to shine some light on it of one color and then the light that's shine uh, sh- shown back that light that is um, emitted from your fluorescent object or plant. It's a different color. So you put in like blue color on it and it shines green color back to you. And if you are in the dark when you don't have blue light, then it won't glow. It will only glow when you put in blue light first and then you see the...
0: The thing is like glow in the light just sounds a lot less cool than glow in the dark.
1: Exactly. Um, and often... Um, then you have filters in the images and you don't see the blue light actually because you block it out you only see the green light and so people see the images where they only see the green light and and the rest is dark so they think the entire system is in the dark but it's actually in blue light that's been filtered out
0: yeah so we chose to do this because it's kind of cool and glowy and of course also it has this movement of plants which is always brilliant um i read a review actually about plants that move and it has this really nice description about how plant movement captures the imagination as such behaviors are unexpected in otherwise often quiescent creatures which i found quite poetic but yeah i think we can all agree that plants that move and snap around are, are pretty awesome right
1: For me, they always came up about the questions like, what is life? And then people were like, yeah, something that moves. And then are plants alive because they don't move? And then he's like, but look at Venus flytraps. They do move. So plants are alive.
0: Yeah, but I do want to add a little point in here that like, actually all plants do move. They just move in a different timing than what we see normally. So yeah, just just to put that in there.
1: So the plant that we're talking about, um, we mentioned already, the Venus flytrap called Dionae uh, muscipula. Um and it's the I think the one of the most iconic um, carnivorous plants. Um they have these little like the structure looks like if you put two hands together with the base of your hand um and then stretch out your fingers then you pretty much have a Venus flytrap and then when something sits in the middle of it um your hands come together your fingers interlock and then you digest the insect in your hands. And this is what happens with the Venus flytrap.
0: Yeah, I don't think a Venus flytrap could realistically eat a bear.
1: Like a very
0: small bear, maybe. Like really, really small. A a water bear, maybe.
1: You would need a couple of Venus flytraps to eat a bear.
0: Yeah. Um, And one of the cool things about the Venus flytrap, this closing mechanism, is that it's been shown in the past that you don't just touch it once to make it close. It actually has to be touched twice. And the second touch should happen within 30 seconds of the first touch And then when these two touches happen together within 30 seconds, that's when you get the snappy motion.
1: Yeah. And twice is um, a very important adaptation and it needs to be touched twice. Um, Because if you imagine like anything falling on the plant, it would close. Um, First of all, the trap would not be available and to actually catch an insect, like if you imagine like a little twig falling in there from a tree above. Um, So it would mean that they're they're close and I can't eat an insect, but it also takes a lot of energy to respring the trap um, and make it available again. So if it would be very sensitive and go off at any touch, uh, that would um, waste a lot of energy. So this is a sort of... uh, um, a safety mechanism for the plant that it needs to have two touches because usually when insects are in there, they start to struggle with their legs and, and um, wings and everything. So they will poke the plant multiple times um, and that is a very safe trigger, like a safe um, a sensation to know that there's actually an insect in there and it's, now it's a good time to close and eat the insect.
0: Yeah, so the point of this paper is basically trying to work out what the the system is that kind of first senses, but then mostly sends this signal from the point where the plant is touched to the kind of parts of the leaf blade that actually are involved in that snapping motion. And this is previously unknown, although I say unknown, but actually... There has been some research before this paper which shows that there is some sort of spread of like mechanical stimulation leading to like an action potential that spreads through the leaf lobes Um, and this comes from initial touch at little sensory hairs so actually inside those kind of hand-like openings on the palm of the hand there are small hairs that get triggered by bugs thrashing about and the second thing that was previously known is that there were some hints that the the signal that was spreading throughout the leaves was potentially calcium. And this is because there have been some uses of chemicals that block the ability of calcium to be sensed. And this has in turn blocked the leaves from closing. So that's a good clue that um, you do need calcium to make this closing happening
1: and it would not be the first time um or not even it would not we we know it's not the first time not the only plant that uses calcium it's a very common trigger in plants um i remember a story in arabidopsis so one of our favorite lab rats the, the small weed um that when it's when it's touched or when sort of things nibble on it like insects nibble on it it sends calcium waves throughout the entire plant you can sort of see them emerging at the point where the leaf is damaged and then spreading throughout the entire plant so that also Areas far away from where the where the insect is eating, they can uh, ramp up their defenses and react to to the danger. Um, and so, this is a very common thing that we know that plants do that they use this, these calcium ions to have a long distance signal signaling from somewhere where something happens to the far end of the plant that um, wants to react to the thing that happens.
0: Yeah, so in order to... See if there was the movement of these calcium signals throughout the plants, the author basically put a fluorescent protein, so a a protein that glows in the light, as Joram previously explained, um, inside these Venus fly traps. But this specific fluorescent protein is one that requires calcium in order to glow, which means that when any wave of calcium hits it, suddenly you get a glow. So you can see these kind of like bursting ripples of glows throughout the plant as the calcium travels throughout the plant. And then once they had put this um, this fluorescent protein that's calcium sensitive into the plants, they then basically did a whole lot of experiments which involved poking the plants and seeing what happened in terms of calcium movement.
1: And uh, when you watch the video that, that goes along with that, um, it's really fun to see because you see sort of yeah in the dark, as we said before, I'm not going into the details again, uh, but you see like an opened uh, Venus flytrap in, in the dark. You can hardly make it out. And then it's like a rid- le- little red tip, like uh, a tool that they used to m- poke it. Um, and they poke it once and you get like, I think it's a, it, the, the video is sped up, but you get like um, a subtle burst of green signal coming from the point where the tip, where they touch the plant, um, but it stays open. And then they touch it again, and then you get like a more intense green, and then the trap actually closes. Um and it's a it's a very like simple thing to observe, but so impressive, um, because it yeah, it summarizes the whole experiment so nicely. Um so yeah, go and check the, the video that we link in in the show notes.
0: Yeah, and you already mentioned that the videos are sped up, but one of the things the authors also did was actually calculate how fast these calcium waves were traveling through the leaves as a signal. And they found that it is like pretty rapid in terms of plant signals. So it's actually um, 20 to 50 times faster than the similar signals that have been seen, for example, in our favorite lab rat, Arabidopsis thaliana. Um, As Yoram also mentioned, they could see with this um, fluorescent protein and the calcium signals that when you first poke the plant, you get a signal that spreads throughout the plant, uh, the leaf, sorry. But then when you poke it again, you actually get a second signal that comes not only faster than the original signal, but also with intense, um, increased, sorry, signal intensity.
1: And Like we mentioned it before, and um, you said it again now with what's up with the, the 30 second window? Like, do the plants have a little like stopwatch? How do they do that?
0: yeah so basically in order to close the scientists suggested that you need to have this second very high um signal intensity of the calcium but that seems to be building off the first wave so you imagine kind of a first push which brings it up to a certain level and then a second push that brings it higher but in between the first and the second push there's actually a decrease of the signal, so like a decay in the amount of calcium that's kind of traveling through these cells and because of that decay, if you wait longer than thirty seconds, approximately, you actually lose too much calcium. So that when you do the second push, you don't get to build on that first push enough, and you don't get above that threshold that causes the closure.
1: And it's one of these very clever ways of of getting timing in in molecular systems. Um, I always like that because we like we have devised all sorts of ways to measure the time um, in all kinds of like periods that we want to uh, distribute time in but um living things they also often need a timed response and it's often these concentration curves um this balancing of producing a signal and reducing the signal and then um having receptors that only are triggered at a certain concentration and so you know when this concentration is reached a certain time has passed and then you can adjust your metabolism to it Um, and this is to me a very impressive example of that with these like Um, this like buildup of like overlay of two signal curves and only if they sort of um, additive, like have an additive overlay, then you actually reach a concentration that you need to trigger um, the signal. Um,
0: Yeah. And I guess that's like an element that we discuss quite often that like in reality within the cell and when we're speaking of molecular things, you don't have this obvious on and off. You tend to have like going up and going down and, you know, moving to different places. It's not these absolute, binaries there's kind of fluxes of everything and this is a nice demonstration where a flux building on another flux ends up with a little snappy motion
1: so that's really cool is there anything else that you want to say about the study
0: um, I think the, the key to this study is the fact that they were actually able to get this um, fluorescent protein that responds to calcium into the Venus flytrap in the first place. So getting fluorescent proteins into plants is a fairly basic thing. Um, it's something that we do quite often. It involves like getting these genes, which then make proteins. So it's, it's genetic transformation. But this is pretty easy for basic plants or or common plants that we use in a lab like Arabidopsis, but it can get tricky when you have sort of weirder plants. So a large part of this study was actually developing the transformation system, which allowed this fluorescent protein to be expressed in the plant in the first place. Another really cool thing that I liked about the plant is uh, the, the paper, sorry, is just the fact that the authors mentioned that there were some limitations to their system And this is basically that they could see this green flush going throughout the leaves, but it was kind of difficult for them to work out at which layer um, of cells within the leaf the, the flush was occurring And that's basically because in order to look at cell layers, you have to cut up leaves into thin sections. But when you start cutting Venus flytrap leaves, they think they're being prodded and they also send off green um, signals. So you end up with a lot of problems. So I thought that was kind of a, Mm. a cute issue that they had here.
1: So for, for students, it's a very straightforward thing to transform Arabidopsis, right? And so um, it's really impressive that they managed to do that with a non-model organism. And then even with one that whenever they try to manipulate it, it sort of closes up and it's like, no, you can't look at it today.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess what they were originally transforming was not the snappy part. It was um, sort of a dilated yeah. plants, but yeah. And also I should notice that the the corresponding author of this paper seems to have some expertise with transforming weird plants that like to move because I saw another article in PLOS One that came out in 2016 where um, this author and some others transformed Mimosa pudica, which is this touch-me-not plant, which kind of folds its leaves whenever you poke it.
1: Yeah, and touching is something that we talked about on Plants and Pets for uh, a couple of times. Um, So we have a story, for example, about, um, I think, yeah, it was, uh, it was once on a podcast, I think over a year ago now, um, but also recently um, uh, as a blog post about um, touching Arabidopsis plants and seeing how, how they react and measure, measuring there. And then also um, about Mimosa. So we link that as well. You can look at these. I just remember another story that we had about um, these micro vibrations from caterpillars on, on plants. Oh, yeah. um, that were also sort of a touch. I mean, they were eating the leaf, but what was actually sensed, they could show that that it was the vibrations of the eating that the plant could sense and react to and not the damage of the cells. Um, so um, plants are actually quite touch sensitive and um, some of them do that, react very fast that we can observe it like uh, mimosa or um, the Venus flytraps, but others, they have much more like subtle ways of reacting to being touched by us or the environment
0: yeah um so that paper was called calcium dynamics during trap closure visualized in transgenic venus fly traps by hiraku suda and colleagues that came out this month in nature plants this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins this
1: is where the fun begins you, Yeah, um, you're up yeah um so now for the thing um for our random findings from the week i found out that um people who are not socially distancing and not wearing masks they're actually officially dumber than a bat um because there has been a study um about bats i mean bats got this kind of bad reputation now right um there's this this um this hypothesis, and I think it's there's very good evidence for it that um, the, the COVID virus I, I always confuse like what is the name of the virus and what is of the disease um, the SARS CoV 2 virus, right? Or is that anyway? Um, we all know what I'm talking about um, that this originated in bats and it sort of mm-hmm. jumped over from the bat to humans um, uh, and now is r- wreaking havoc across the world, and that bats are very good. Vector carrier of lots and lots of different viruses, Um, um, but they did a study now where they looked at the behavior of bats when they feel sick. What what happens then? Because they're highly social animals, they they live in these clusters of up to like I think somewhere I I heard like up to millions of animals in caves uh, in the habitats where they live. Um, So they're highly social, but when they feel sick, they actually naturally social distance each other so in the study they they caught some bats um briefly in the wild and then they injected them with a with a drug that gave them symptoms of being sick without actually being sick so they, for a couple of uh, hours they the bats felt really bad and uh felt Wait, like they hang were, on
0: hang on what how <laughs> Did I they don't, in,
1: in the article that i read they didn't go into the detail of, of what the chemical was <laughs> But they said it was... How
0: do, you, how do you make a bat feel sick when it's not actually sick?
1: and anyway, like they clogged up their noses and they, they had to cough a little bit and um, I don't know. Um, but they, they said it was very important that they they um, injected them with a substance to activate their immune system, which made them feel sick for a few hours but didn't cause any real disease, is what ah, okay, the article so they triggered an,
0: They triggered an immune response then.
1: Yeah, but not uh, okay. with no pathog- pathogen. Um, And then they had a control set of bats that were just getting some salt solution as a placebo. Um, And then they put um, trackers on them, on the bats that they injected, and also on other bats from the same group. Um, And with these little wireless trackers, they could see how close they were to each other. And now they could observe that the, the bats who felt healthy, they stayed within normal distance to other bats. But the bats who felt sick they um, kept the distance they were further away from the healthy bats um, as long as they felt sick um, and they were sort of naturally avoiding the others to avoid spreading their own disease to the other bats um, and that just shows that bats are better at social distancing and disease response than most of us humans are apparently I mean
0: we all- I have to mention that we don't know that if the bats were avoiding the other bats or if the, the healthy bats were shunning the sick. like maybe the healthy bats were like, go away. like no, you can't come to my house.
1: I think they said it's it's um like a two- way thing. like I think also the the healthier ones were avoiding them um but um yeah, but sort of everybody agreed like somebody's sick, like keep a distance and don't invite them over to your home for parties or don't go to work when you're sick. Um, so yeah, bats are smarter than we are in that
0: respect. Which is perhaps not... I mean, bats are not stupid, right? They're,
1: no, they're, not, they're not
0: unintelligent mammals. I just want to put a, a mention here. If you do like bats or if you don't like bats and think that you should get over your bat prejudice or you want to learn more about bats, there's a really great Instagrammer called Bats for Life Kristen, um, who we'll link to here. And they have just some really nice... Yeah, I mean, it's great science communication. Anyway, that's pretty much all I can say. Yeah. Go check it out.
1: And there's also um, a little underground movie that some people might want to watch. Um, it's about a man who's really into bats. Um, there's a couple of movies actually now um, called Batman. So, Tegan, what's your next <laughs> next fun fact?
0: I just didn't get that. I was just like super, super confused. Oh, I hate you. Um, none of my facts this week are plant facts, which is possibly an issue. But... A few episodes ago, I was talking about this cool thing about newts and salamanders and how they just didn't grow up properly. Do you remember that?
1: No, I don't, I don't really remember the story. I remember talking about newts, but maybe you can remind me what, what we were talking about.
0: Um, basically, I was talking about the fact that some animals, they don't really go into, they don't change out of their basically larval stage and become proper animals adults so they don't go through this morphological change that they should do to become a proper adult animal they kind of stay as juveniles
1: yeah yeah now now i remember and since then i heard that axolotls do something similar that they stay sort of in this i don't know if it's called a larva stage but they, they stay at this juvenile state and they can still um, be sexually active and reproduce even though they're not technically turning into adults
0: yeah, so I think pedomorphosis is the the technical term. So pedo is like child, we know that, and then morphosis, I guess, is like morphology about this kind of structure, and this is retaining larval traits at the adult stage. Um, and I was just looking at a paper that I saw recently. It's called Progenesis as an intrinsic factor of ecology opportunity in a polyphenic amphibian. Don't worry about the title too much, but it's basically just going through this idea that staying in a larval form can actually have some really cool benefits because you can have different ecological traits And then have sort of a a, a trophic advantage where um, the the actual adults who have become adults might use different resources from the adults who have stayed more larval. And there's another element of this also, um, which is part of this paedomorphosis, where um, the organisms just basically stay quite small. And again, having a smaller body sizes can actually be beneficial in different environments. So yeah, mainly that they can occupy different niches than the these like real adults um, and yeah, might kind of get something out of that and therefore have a fitness advantage. So it's, it's kind of a cool, to me, it's just a really bizarre idea that you would stay juvenile. But then if there's some benefits of it, if you can imagine that going to an adult stage requires you having like needing new food sources or needing new habitats and those are not available, maybe like having a certain amount of the population not do that in an evolutionary context makes sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know. To me, I find it really weird and fascinating. It's just not something I'd ever thought of before. It's bizarre.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. It's like a very optimized way of using the ecological niche that you have, the resources that you have. And um, yeah, I wonder if it's also dynamic. I wonder if they can... react if like one year sort of the resources that the larva stage requires gets more scarce that then more of them transition into the adult stage where there's more resources and vice versa if then the adult resources are depleted more that they then stay longer like more of them more of the population stays in the larva stage Um, but yeah
0: yeah i'm actually i'm not actually sure what the stimulus for you know, going through this real adult transition is I have, I have really no idea. I mean, we're not animal, <laughs> no. <laughs> animal biologists. Um, no, but it's, don't it's... even really know what newts are to be honest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I have a short video. Um, it's a sort of, um, a little entertainment break. Um, it's uh, Actually, it's not called the way the thing that I wrote here, what it's called. I I've, I wrote uh, Rocky your, your Vote, but it's actually just called Time Warp from Tenacious D and that's really what it is. It's um, the song Time Warp from uh, one of the greatest musicals of all times from a Rocky Horror Picture Show um, reinterpreted by um, Jack Black and his um, compagnon for Tenacious D. Actually, I don't know what the second Tenacious D member is called, but they yeah, performing the song uh, very obviously from, from their home studios because they're not together in the same studio, but they have a lot of cool celebrity, celebrity cameos in there um, because they take the main message. It's just a jump to the left, and then they sing not a step to the right um, in the preparation of the vote. Um, so it's a little bit political but also it's a lot of fun um for the song that they're singing and i think we could all use a jump to the left um so yeah check that out if you need a little music break for your day i think tegan is listening to it or she's just started dancing um, because i don't hear any music coming from her end so it might very well be that she's just um or she's gone crazy who knows maybe she's gone mad I have a short story about um, new research that has been done about the carbon sink capacity in China, especially in some Chinese forests in some regions um, that were grossly underestimated. And that came as a little bit of a surprise for the field. And I can only sort of uh, quote and recite what's written in the article because I'm not from the field of carbon sink research. Um, so I can only tell you that researchers were surprised that um, that they... Um, that they identified forests that account for a little over 35% of China's entire land carbon sink just in these, uh, in these forests that they sort of reassessed for their capacity to bind carbon. Um, and that's making the rounds now in, in this sort of, in this, this, what's the word for it? In this niche of expertise of scientists, um, and it's pretty cool because they integrated a lot of like satellite data, but also on-location analysis to properly assess how much carbon is actually bound in these areas. And um, what's important to know now, like, first of all, they, they gave some, some measurements in petagrams, which I find a very interesting unit um, that I never came across uh, before. Um, a petagram is a billion tons. Um, and... The total capacity, let me just see if I can pull this up from here. So interestingly is that it's about a a sink for for 0.35 petagrams, so that's 350 million tons of carbon dioxide per year that's additionally sequestered in there. Um, and that's just to put that into perspective, that's about an order of magnitude less than what China is emitting right now. But China has vowed to change their emissions to, be, to reach the peak before 2030 and then to be carbon neutral by 2060, I believe. Yeah. Um, um,
0: so this was an announcement that came quite recently, actually.
1: Yeah. And so these forests, um, I mean, they don't actively help. I mean, they don't, they can't really use them because they there's just a natural fluctuation that you have like in um, during their growth time, the forests take up carbon, but then they release it again. So the net sequestering is actually much smaller than sort of the, the flux that goes in and out of the forest. Um, but it's still important for modeling, for assessing of um, carbon sink potential and so on to have accurate numbers. Um, and this new research really helps with having these accurate numbers to... Have a good understanding of the the potential that we have of um, or where we can bind carbon and which areas we have to protect but if you because if you imagine now removing these forest lands that would release um an insane amount of carbon dioxide that's currently bound, so all of these things are important then when it comes to real life decisions about what to do with land
0: yeah. And as always, finding out that we have more carbon uptake than we previously thought is not a free pass to start yep. <laughs> burning more fossil fuels. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's why
1: I said that it doesn't mean that now we have this amazing carbon sponge and now we can emit emit whatever we want because sort of the the actual amount of carbon that's deposited per year is very fairly small. I mean, it's still millions of tons, but it's as I said. Um, an order of magnitude of just what China is um, emitting plus like all of the things that are the other countries are emitting so um, even though it's a massive carbon sink it's not something that's massively sucking carbon out of the air
0: speaking of China I have a fun fact that is about pandas and apparently this is from IFL science and apparently for the first time ever pandas have been filmed mating in the wild creepy for the first time ever no but how is that not incredibly unbelievable to you that nobody has ever caught pandas getting it on in the wild before
1: from what i've heard is that they are incredibly bad at getting it on so i can imagine that it's just a rare occurrence um and then especially when they when they sense that people are around they're even more um put off and not doing it
0: Um, So, basically, there was some footage that came out as part of a nature documentary called Pandas Born to be Wild. And the the pair of Chinese filmmakers actually spent three years looking at pandas.
1: If you would have told me just the title of the documentary and would have been like, what animal is this about? Born to be wild. I would not have guessed panda, to be honest. (laughs)
0: Yeah, but having said that, if you say pandas are born to be wild, you can at least get some inclination that it might be about their sex lives, right? That's something slightly like, yeah, indicative. No, no, just me, just me. To um, me, it would
1: be about motorcycles and stuff.
0: Okay, yeah, pandas ready. Okay, um, anyway. The filmmakers and scientists managed to document the courtship, which could be helpful in understanding why pandas don't breed very well at the zoo. So the courtship was quite lengthy and it involved quite a lot of different steps, like roaring, snarling, marking with scent, and then fighting among different males. And there's some suggestions that maybe this actually triggers the female to even ovulate in the first place. So... Yeah, maybe this explains why we can't do it in the, in captivity. So maybe it's not the pandas' fault that they don't breathe in captivity. I always thought, like, to be honest, I always thought it was a bit their fault. I thought they were a little bit of an evolutionary dead end because they don't know how to breed, and they're also not super good at eating and or moving. So they...
1: I was definitely think- frigid shaming pandas. Yeah, Maybe. but they also
0: just seem like poorly adapted at survival generally. Like yeah. they eat bamboo. Bamboo has no nutritional value. They don't even have the correct adaptations in their teeth and their stomach and their gut like to digest the bamboo. They're just constantly they basically t- constantly have irritated bowels and are constantly sleepy and malnourished and yeah. they also don't want to have sex and make more pandas. So I wasn't really on the panda side, but having seen this, maybe they're okay.
1: You 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 have more respect for them now that you know that the females only ovulate when the males punch each other in the face and urinate on places? <laughs> That's a good point. I would have much <laughs> I, I have even less respect now if I imagine like like if, if human women were only ready to mate after a bar fight that ended in public urination and then the female, the, the, the human female would be like, oh, this sounds like a very good mate. I can't say that I I have the highest of, of thoughts about this.
0: Yeah, but I mean, like, if, if you think about it in terms of, it's like you being put in, I don't know, a, a plastic bubble that's filled with lobsters with another human female and told, okay, now go, like, make more humans. Like... Maybe it's just very confusing to them yeah. <laughs> why this is supposed to be a sexy environment when we're trying to make them mate at the zoo. So that I find a bit more understandable. Like
1: when they actually just want to punch each other in the face, and
0: it's not—it's not about the punching specifically. It's more about we haven't been making the right romantic atmosphere for them to get it on.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe we can learn from that and then help them to not die out. Um, so yeah. As I said.
0: We just have so little sympathy for them. Yeah. They're pretty cute.
1: Even there, like, I could name a dozen animals that are cuter. Like a baby Tyrannosaurus. Like, it's so unfair that Tyrannosaurus are extinct and pandas are kept alive (laughs) when baby Tyrannosaurus are objectively cuter (laughs) Yeah,
0: but they've got those ridiculous little arms, don't they? At least pandas have arms. (laughs) Yeah, but they don't
1: use them. Like, you can't blame a T-Rex for not using their arms because they're so tiny. But a panda has, like, everything. They have everything there for them. They're just not using it. um, Anyway, I don't want to hate too much on pandas than I'm already doing
0: Okay, so I have um, something for Yoram. I'm going to give you a link. Can you click on the link? Um, It's at scientistcsquirrel.wordpress.com. And I want you to (laughs) try to pronounce the scientific... Yoram is usually our scientific name expert. He actually um, studied Latin at school and is very wise. So can you see if you can pronounce this scientific name of a newly described myxobacterium, so a type of bacteria? Um, I'll do the first bit. Mixer is the genus name. So I've done half. Now you do the second half.
1: Lanfer... I mean, it's it's. Fr- I could cheat and read from the image above, but I'm not doing a... It's named after a place, I can tell from the image, and it's a Welsh place, I can tell from the weird word it is. It's one of these places that has... More than all of the letters of the alphabet in it. Um, and there's actually um, a sort of pronunciation guide below that, like uh, on this. Like, um, I think it's like a station sign from a train station. It's Lanvaya Pool, Gilgogger, Gilgogar, Drop, Landis, Eogogog, I think. And that's what the bacterium mm-hmm. is called after, like named after, because mm-hmm. scientists are evil.
0: Well, I mean, it's in this case it happens to be named after the place where the bacterium was found, I believe.
1: Yeah, and I mean, so in this, this case, is, this I would rather recommend renaming the place rather than the bacterium.
0: I mean, so so Welsh is can be quite a difficult language, I would say, um, and it's also not so commonly used. But it's it's nice that it is using kind of the the language of the place not kind of an adopted name and anyway so this is this is um a new species which has now potentially the the longest name the longest latin name of of any species so it's 73 letters in total it Um, just means
1: for the researchers that they will never be invited to any conference like imagine giving a talk about this Um, No, they should be invited
0: because they can say it properly,
1: right? You only have like a twenty-minute slot, and you're using half of it to pronounce your bacterium name.
0: I don't think they are. I think like they. Anyway, this is part of a bigger argument. So I'm going to link to another article, which is came out in Communications Biology. It's um, entitled "Restoring Indigenous Indigenous Names in Taxonomy." It's by Gilman and. Shane Donald Wright, so Len Norman Gilman and Shane Donald Wright. And it's a discussion of the fact that a lot of the species that we have, their Latin name, so this genus and species name, is named after the person who discovered them. And I'm using discovered in sort of inverted commas because the discovery was very often by a white colonizer. And this is incorrect. In most of the cases, the species that we have in the world were not discovered by British men coming to Australia. Those species have already been discovered, been known, and in fact been named for decades, centuries, millennia, before these dudes rocked up. So I think this is actually an interesting argument, especially because the way we do our naming this um, Linnaeus system, it is... Very specifically, there's there's very strict rules that the name given to the species should be the first name given to it. So if there have been three or four different names um, of the species attributed back in the days before we had the internet, then the one that was was first there gets the right to to be the name of that species. And if it's like the first species in the genus, it gets to, to claim the whole genus, right? which if we we go on these these own these these very particular rules means that we should be incorporating original names i mean it's it's really an argument for trying to get the original names into the scientific names instead of getting the name of some random white guy who funded a trip to a country that that person never even saw right like yeah okay i'll put a link to the article in the show notes if you guys want to check that out
1: I have a, a, a final short recommendation, another video today. Um, uh, and I stumbled across it. Actually, I don't know what, what I was researching, but I um, came across this video about the electron transport chain uh, and what it looks like in a cell. And what I quite liked about this is that usually when you have sort of molecular schemes, you have these oblong blobs of different colors and you say like okay the red one is complex one and the blue one is complex two and then you draw arrows how they go like something goes through them Um, and it's very abstract and it helps us to understand the mechanisms but to me it gives only a very bad impression of what it looks like in a cell so but we know what these things look like in in real life from crystal structures so um we can actually draw them accurately, and in this short video, um, they put together the electron transport chain that happens in mitochondria, and so therefore in pretty much all living things, um, there is some sort, some version of this electron transport chain, even down to bacteria um, that don't have mitochondria. Just don't misunderstand me there. But like, um, this is one of the most conserved energy metabolism uh, metabolism pathways, and they show how um electrons are channeled through there and how other things are channeling um sort of uh yeah pretty much electrons across there and how that helps to generate um energy or to convert energy that the cell can use it and um even for me who has looked at so many of these different diagrams i didn't come across uh, i never came across something like this before where you can actually see the crystal structures actually the closest image that we have to what a protein would really look like um, and then see them in action and how they behave. And there's also like ATP synthase in there, which is a really cool uh, enzymatic complex that actually turns like an an engine, like a machine, it rotates. And uh, when protons are pushed through it and that it uses sort of the current of protons as like a, like a water wheel um, to convert, um, some molecule into a higher energy form of the molecule that can be then used in the cell. Um, so go check that out if you have any interest in that, want to see what it really, want to get some idea of what it looked like in the cell. Um, and it also in the end goes into this point that um, we look at these things sort of as a linear structure, like with the like four or five players that are involved, but actually they are in this super crowded space where you have like thousands of them next to each other, um, that all running this molecular reaction, um, and to me that gave a very cool perspective of what it looks like in in cellular metabolism.
0: Yeah, I like that there's, there. So these like three dimensional blobs, but they're also kind of jiggling around in space, and there are other things jiggling around with them. And yeah, it's kind of that cellular chaos, which is quite delightful. <coughs>
1: cat fact
0: every week Yoram asks me do you want the cat jingle yes yes, Yoram I always want the cat jingle Um, I actually can't believe that we haven't talked about this before on last week's podcast because I've talked about it with literally everybody else I've interacted with and it's the fact that um, there's a new set of Nazca lines found in Peru which are cat shaped so, if you don't know what the Nazca lines are, they're these beautiful etchings in the earth, which are just massively large. And there's a whole lot of different ones. So, I mean, there's humans, there's bird shapes, there's, yeah, lots of different things, I guess. And and the
1: crazy thing about them is that you can best see them from the air, which puzzled people for a long time, right? Because Well,
0: I mean, yeah, you can also get a fairly good idea of how they look from a hill. Yeah. This is yeah. I mean they're they're amazing and they're an a nice demonstration of of past cultural dedication to beauty and art. Um they're not made by aliens in case any of you are thinking that. That's How how do you know that? Stupid and unrealistic. <laughs> I mean this is this thing where people always try to all oh, the pyramids were made by aliens. Yeah, maybe you're just not appreciating the degree of technology and skill and okay, a lot of slave labor also, but like it's kind of a gross underestimation of the culture at the time to say that I mean, aliens must have come in and done this right like this is a nice thing about a cat that was found in the side of the hill i like it because apart from being a cat it also looks just a little bit like a kangaroo um and it's about two thousand years old it's not as big as some of the other nasca figures but it's still pretty impressive i would say and We're we're always happy to see cats.
1: Did you read why we only discovered it now? Um, I would imagine, I mean, these are fairly big structures that you can see from flying above them. Why did we only discover it now? Was it overgrown with something?
0: Um, It just was only really faintly visible. So it's kind of on quite a steep um, slope that's got some like natural erosion happening. So it's they sort of had to clean it and then conserve it to actually see the the figure properly. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm Hmm. But cool yeah so it's
0: a 37 meter long cat
1: that's the best kind of cat yeah um, with that uh, we're at the end of today's show um, if you want to get in touch with us you can find us on social media on twitter you can talk to me that's at plants
0: on instagram and on facebook it's me it's at plants and pipettes
1: We also have a website um, where you can find new articles about cool stories from the world of molecular plant science. As I said at the top of the show, this week we've kind of been busy with other stuff, but usually you find around two new articles every week. um, And we have some cool stuff on there.
0: Yeah, I mean, this week we've been running the Halloween stuff that we wrote Last year, so talking about yeah, check that the out. S- scariest plants that there are out there, and also some weird names of plant genes that scientists have come up with over the last years
1: yeah, we will link those um in the show notes and uh, um there's another one that I wrote I think already last week it must have been last week um that I just want to mention because I want to sing it that it, uh, it could be witchweed some evil witchweed I wasn't singing the but anyway um. I hope some of you recognize that reference and I'm proud of you. Uh, you can also, when we say something wrong, like I do most of the time, you can contact us and, and uh, leave, leave comments on the website or just um, message us. We're always happy to hear from you, hear feedback. Or if you have other input, other things that you would like us to talk about, um, send us a me- message. It's much appreciated.
0: Uh, opening and closing music is Carvana by Philip Gross. That's all.
1: And with that, thank you. Goodbye. And goodbye.
0: A few episodes ago, I was talking about this cool thing about newts and salamanders and how they just didn't grow up properly. Do you remember that?
1: I remember uh, the word nude and that I had to look up what a nude is because it's um I mean yeah I didn't I didn't know that uh and then confused me very much when I thought about going to a nude beach
0: Yaram cutting that <laughs> I hate you so much
1: <laughs> I'm sorry my brain is really not functioning anymore after this day. Like you have to imagine I'm running on like 1% of brain capacity.